0: Listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Uh, Well, one of the things we did while we were uh, away on this sabbatical is we took a a study tour of Greece and Turkey. This was real recently. We went with some families here, some families from uh, some other churches, and we headed over to Turkey and Greece and we hit up all sort of the ancient sites. Uh, We did like the the tour of uh, the seven churches of Revelation, like we went to the sites where Paul rolled into town and preached the gospel. We did that sort of thing. It was an amazing trip. I highly recommend it uh, if you ever get the chance to do that. Uh, Turkey was great. Wasn't my favorite food, but it was okay. Uh, Less turkey than I was expecting, actually. Um, But uh, when I got to Greece, something changed inside me. Um, As some of you know, my mom is from Greece. Uh, I am Greek. I've never been, so I didn't know what kind of version of myself would would show up when I got to the shores. But uh, I turned up to 11, y'all. Like Whatever level of obnoxious you experience me at now, hang with me in Athens. It's... uh, it's a different thing. I just roll into town and I'm just, I'm on fire, man. I'm looking for like the first place that I can go get a pinky ring and a shirt that's gonna show my chest hair. Like I just wanna do this thing. And I'm talking to like folks trying to use my Greek from seminary and I'm eating all the food. I did something I swore I'd never do. Uh, mom, if you're watching, confession. I got a tattoo, um, I, a Greek tattoo from a Greek man named Jimmy. It was perfect. The whole experience was just marvelous. I mean, how could it not be? If if you've never been, you roll into Athens, and the first thing that you see when you're in Athens, is up on the hill is what? You see the Parthenon. It's the Parthenon! And uh, you know, we go up there, and we spend a day like kinda touring that side along with other places, and it's just amazing. I mean, it's so big and grand, and these, these, pillars and the columns and all the, the stuff, it's breathtaking, it's, be- it's, it's like some of the best art you will ever see. And, and yet, as we're there, it's, it's also this interesting sensation because it's a study tour, so you're not just there to like, appreciate it for the art's sake, you're, you're there studying about what it was there for in the first place. And of course, when we're experiencing the Parthenon, it's art to us. But that was so not the experience of the ancients, right? For them, it's not art, it's worship. Right? Because if you didn't know this, the Parthenon isn't just like a museum up there in Athens. It, it was a temple. It's an ancient temple to the goddess Athena. Right, so, so what's happening there 2,000 years ago is very different than what's happening with me and my little iPhone there. They're coming, they're bringing sacrifices, and they're worshiping this pagan deity, Athena. And, and across the street, there's a temple to Apollo. And down the road, there's a temple to Zeus. And, it, and you, it's so ubiquitous in this culture. This, the ancients uh, operated like this. When I'm in need, uh, when I'm struggling, when I have trouble, I go to the gods for help. You see it everywhere you go. In every city we went in, uh, over at the, at the city center or the Acropolis, you would see a temple because the people knew, when I'm in need, i go to the gods for help. And what's interesting, kind of coming back into modern life, is thinking about us and how so opposite we see the world, right? Because what do we do when we're in need, when we're struggling, when, when, when life sort of hits the fan for us, how, how do we operate? We, we do something very different than the ancients. They, they didn't turn inward when they were struggling; they turned outward to the divine. But what do we do when, when we're struggling? We turn not outward but inward. I look inside. I, I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going I'm to pull my bootstraps up and I'm going to make this thing work right. And we invest a little bit different, and we throw some money at that thing, or like we try to straighten our lives out. Or we, you know, um, your parents probably said it all the time to you when you were kids: "That God helps those who." Help themselves, right? It's it's the American way, right? This is what we do. when When we're in need, we go in, right? And and the problem with that is it's killing us, right? Anxiety, depression, uh, at like every age level in, in our country, it's just like at all time highs. The thing that we're thinking is going to solve our problem, it's not working. Clearly, something's broken and dysfunctional. And this, what I love about the psalm today is it is it is meant to upset our self-reliance that's that's what it's here to do we're going to watch some stories unfold in this psalm uh, about people in trouble and we're going to watch where do they where do they turn and and then when they turn what happens to them and and the entire labor of this psalm is to convince you of this when you're in trouble you don't don't turn in you turn to him That's the point of the psalm. You wanna know what we're we're doing today, it's that. When you're in trouble, you don't turn in, you turn to him. You turn to the only one who can help. And when you come to him, he will never fail you. He'll never fail you. Now that's, I mean, that's like as basic Christianity 101 as you're gonna get, right? I just said the point of this sermon is trust God, right? But the issue is not so much Do you know that intellectually? I bet if you're in this room, most of you know that. The issue is, do you live like you know that? You live like you know that's true. Because when you start to think about all the panic that shows up in your life when things aren't going your way and, and the, all the ways that you try to straighten out the situation yourself or when you think about like all the hiding that you tend to do when you've sinned for like the thousandth time that day and you're just like, I can't I can't go to anyone with this. I'm just going to have to maybe clean my life up and then I can come out into the light. Or, or when you think about all the sort of safety nets that you put in your life to, to just... Help protect you from actually needing God's help. When you think about all that, I think we're, we're a people that really need the message of this psalm today, yeah? We, we need this. And so uh, that's where we're heading today. If you've got a Bible, get it out. We're gonna be in Psalm 107. We're not gonna cover everything here. It's, I think it's 43 verses, but we're gonna do uh, our best. Uh, the psalm begins with a preamble praising God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, that, that's a, that, that phrase comes uh, a million times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a popular phrase, and there's a word in there that's very precious to us. It's that word uh, phrase, steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed, we've talked about it before on Sundays. It is, uh, it is God's covenantal Love. It's God's promise-keeping love. It's a special word that he reserves for his people. It's, it's his uh, I'm never going to fail, you can count on me, I'll be there at the time I said I'm going to be there every time kind of love. It's his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his loyal love, some translations have it. Uh, and it's a very important word. Uh, And uh, what follows after this sort of preamble is just a bunch of snapshots of how this love is going to play out in a person's life when everything goes wrong. That's what we're about to see. It's kind of like going, why do we give thanks to the Lord? Here's why. Look at these folks struggling, and then look at what God did. That's kind of the feel of the psalm. And What we're going to see are stories of people in trouble, but it's trouble that's brought about by a bunch of different means. Right? So you, you, we're going to see uh, stories of trouble that's brought about by stupidity. We're going to see uh, trouble that's brought about by sin. And we'll see it brought about by sovereignty. Stupidity, sin, and sovereignty. I love that there's a point in the sermon today called stupidity. I think that's awesome. Uh, what do the people do in these circumstances, in this, in this trouble, and how does God respond? That's what we're looking at. So let's look at the first one. Story one. Uh, look at verse four with me. It says this. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. So, the, so these are guys who are, are destitute. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're wandering in a desert place, apparently. Now, some commentaries uh, I read, they want to spiritualize this. They'll go desert waste, uh, That idea also appears as like a a desert waste of the soul in some parts of your Bible. So maybe it's like a spiritual desert. uh, Calm down, everybody. That's what I want to say. I I think they may just be in a desert. Um, so they're wandering the desert wastes. They, 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 they don't have a city that they can dwell in. They're looking for a place to go to. And, and the text is silent on how they got there, why they got there. There's no commentary, positive or negative, about it, uh, which, at least for me when I read this, at least opens the door. It opens the possibility uh, that uh, somebody just fumbled the ball. Right? They, we don't know how they got there, but you can at least imagine that somebody held the map upside down. Right? And now, and now they're, they're like, I thought we were going to be in Jerusalem, and now we're here. They're like, you've got to charge the GPS before you go out there, Bill. You can't do that. right? And, and now they're in the, the wastelands, wandering around. Now, I, I like thinking about it like that because they leave the door open for it because I so identify with whatever that human being is that's wandering around. I spend probably one-third... Of my one half of my life, just wandering places, no no idea where I'm at. Uh, grocery stores, just scared on an aisle, not knowing where bread is. Uh, this is my life. I'm constantly lost or losing things. If you've ever been in a car with me, you know this to be true. Ch- it's just a it's it's bad for me. Uh, Rodney Hobbs, I believe, uh, bought me last year for my birthday those Apple AirTags, uh, which is like a GPS tracking device for your stuff. Can I just say that's not a birthday present? That's an insult. That's what that is. That's an indictment on me. Consequently, they're amazing. They're super helpful. I uh, use them on everything. I gave one to each of my kids to swallow so I know where they're at. It is, uh, they're, they're wonderful. But my, my point is just to say I can vouch for the fact that being an idiot has consequences. It's, it's a rough go for guys like me. I have, I'm the guy who has multiple times put my wallet on top of the car and just driven off into the wasteland. Right, I am am the guy who who has dropped my keys in an airport parking garage and flown to a different state. Just, just keys. Just, I don't know who's in my car when I get home. Just, I don't know. Just sitting in the back seat, maybe. I, I I have. I'm the guy who is driven away from the pump with a pump in it. Right? (laughs) They make memes about me. It's not not okay, there's a problem here, and it makes life hard. And every time this happens, the same response happens in me, I become an atheist for like five minutes. I'm like, there is no God, everything's awful, I gotta figure this all out by myself. I panic, I get in panic mode. My wife can attest to this, I'm a a mess. Uh, But what happens here, that's that's what I'm interested in, because I I wanna see how these men are gonna respond to this situation of being destitute and and maybe it was their fault, We, we don't know. What is the impulse of these wanderers? Well, you're gonna see this refrain over and over in this psalm, but here it is for the first time. It says this, then, after all that, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. Okay, so what did they do? They, they, They were destitute, they were hungry and thirsty, they didn't know where to go, somebody got them lost, they're out there somewhere, and they brought their need to God. Listen, don't let your foolishness make you an atheist. I think that's one of the points here. Don't let your foolishness make you an atheist. You cry out to God. Are you a knucklehead? Cry out to him. It's, it's okay. So you fumbled. The invitation of this text is don't dwell on that. Dwell on him and his faithfulness even when you fumble. Even when you're wandering around, you don't know how you got there. You, you come to him Right? And, and, and what I love about this, and you're going to see this four times over in this psalm, is without even a break in the sentence, what happens next? What happens to the heart of God with these fools, these knuckleheads? Right? It isn't scolding. It isn't indifference. It's just a comma and then mercy. Mercy comes. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, comma, and he delivered them from their distresses. I love that. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. We bring our need to him. He brings his mercy to us. That's the pattern. We bring our need, he brings his mercy. And, and that's what this psalm is trying to convince you of. God's impulse is mercy. If you're wondering what, like, is deep down in him, it is that when I show up with my need, he shows up with his mercy. And, and I bring this up because Part of the function of a sermon and scripture is to help us retrain our heart. So retrain your heart with me this morning, fellow stupid person. When you are in trouble, and you don't know how you could have been so dumb, you don't dwell on that. I don't live here in like the, oh, what was me? I turn out, I turn to him, and I plead with him for mercy. And when we bring our need, he brings his mercy. And do you know what happens on the other side of that mercy every time in this psalm? And every time when God meets that need in us, what happens next is praise. Look at the text. It bursts into praise. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of men. So here's the pattern you're gonna see over and over in the psalm. My need, God's mercy, my praise. That's how it goes. Need, mercy, praise. This is the pattern of the Christian life. And because this is a psalm, I wanted to do something a little uh, different this morning. We're just going to, we're going to do this together. We're going to say this uh, last line uh, together uh, because it's meant to be sung and recited anyway. So it'll be on the screen for you. We got that up there? There it is. Let's say this together. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Amen. So that is our God with the stupid. But what about, um, what about when the stakes are higher? What about when it is your fault and you know it and you did it willfully? What about when it's the trouble that's come into your life has come because of your high-handed sin? What then? What do you do then? Well, that's what this... Story gets at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in afflictions and in irons. So these are folks who are arrested, right? Either within themselves or in an actual prison, they are enslaved in, in some version, some, in some way. In, this, uh, in the next story that, that uh, we'll only just touch on right here, verse 17, the, the people in that story are so afflicted that they're not even eating anymore. They've lost kind of their will to live. So, so th- these guys are in a bad spot. They're in affliction and misery and chains of iron and bronze. That, that thing is happening right here. Now the question is, why? How did they get there? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. How'd they get there? Why are they imprisoned? It wasn't just happenstance, and it wasn't because they were holding the map wrong, right? They're in prison because of their willful sin. It's that they, so they spurned the words of God and the counsel of the most high. They weren't interested, I'm gonna do it my way. Remember a number of weeks ago we talked about autonomy, living autonomously, just doing whatever I want. They spurned God's counsel and they did what they wanted and it brought hardship into their life. This is a a different story than the last one. It's a darker story than the last one in a lot of ways. And in many ways, this is how anyone in here or at home feels who deals with addiction. Right, uh, the, I am. Uh, I have come back here so many times when I've been struggling with sin in, in that way. Um, this is a, this is a passage that I think puts some really helpful imagery to that experience of an addict. And, and listen, for those of you who know any of my story, you know that's been part of my story. That for a decade of my life, I was a pornography addict, and, and it was ruining my life. It was it was kind of absorbed everything I did. And, and at some point, you know, it's fun for a while. And then at some point, I turned a corner and it wasn't fun anymore. It was just dark and it was sad. And I just remember feeling this feels, this feels like jail now. I'm, uh, this, this is oppressive. This is not what I thought it was at the start. So I'm, I'm familiar with this feeling of addiction. And some of you in this room, you hear that language of shackles and chains. And you're like, that's exactly what I feel like in my sin. I feel, I feel like I can't go, go anywhere. I feel like I'm bound. I can't do... This is how it's always going to be. That must be what it is. It's it's turned from a pleasure into your master. This is what addiction and sin does. So what do you do when you're in a dungeon of your own making? That's the question. What What do you do when you've made the prison and you're in it? Well, The text is telling us we don't... There's nothing in here about that. There's no hiding because of embarrassment. Like I've I've gone too far, I can't verbalize it to anybody, so I'm just gonna stay in the shadows. And and the text also doesn't encourage us to cover it up. It doesn't say, therefore they they cleaned themselves real nice and then brought themselves to God and then he helped them out. It doesn't say that either, right? It's not about making your good works outweigh your bad works. The text tells us what to do. We cry out to God when we're afflicted. We cry out to God. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Do you see the pattern again? My need is expressed to God, and God meets that need with mercy. Need, then mercy. Now, I think, I think you need to feel the shock of this. The, the last story felt a little bit more like, yeah, God's gonna help them out because, you know, they're, they're silly fools that are out there. But the, there's, there's some shock here, because these are guys who have spurned God, and yet still, what do we experience in the text? It's then they cried out to the Lord, comma, mercy. It's that fast. That should offend you if you believe God's holy. That should bother you a little bit. Why does he go that quick, right? This is, this is not how people act. This isn't how we in our tribes act. Think about how you act when somebody has just totally wrecked themselves, wrecked their lives, and you knew it was coming. You warned them about it, and they did it anyways, and then they come crawling back to you. How, how does that moment go in your heart? Maybe you don't say it, but it's definitely like a, well, 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 look what the cat dragged in. No, no, I want to savor this. Let me get my iPhone, right? Okay, take up pics. This is, this is what we do, we savor the moment. We let them sit in it a bit, right? We don't, it's no comma mercy for a a human being but it is for god look at look at how god acts he rushes to them right they bring their need and, and he goes i'm here I'm coming. I'm coming for you. This is this is why we love the prodigal son story. What's so shocking about the prodigal son story is that the son is such a reprobate, such a terrible person. And then it, it, this little inkling of like, I probably need to repent go, comes into his mind. He starts heading back to his dad. And, and the reason we even still tell the story is because that dad rushes. As soon as his son makes an inch toward him, he rushes back to his son, hikes up his clothes, and takes off running after him. It's scandalous. God's mercy is scandalous. Even for the Worst of us in this room. Even for the, the, the one whose, whose sin would make you blush in this room, it's still, comma, mercy. If you'll come, it is always just, comma, mercy. That's how our God acts. He's a scandalous helper. And he's always been like this. He's always been like this in Scripture. Do you remember uh, the story of King Manasseh? Uh, in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles, you remember that guy? He was a, uh, I'll give you a quick recap. He was a, one of the later kings of Judah. Uh, he started reigning when he was 12. He reigned 55 years, and he was a monster, y'all. He was as bad as, as it gets. In fact, the text will say that he was worse than any king before or after him, and he was worse than any pagan king, not just the Israelite kings. He was worse than any of the people who didn't know Yahweh. Here's here's kind of his laundry list of stuff that he did. So he took idols, right, pagan, like demonic idols, and he puts them inside the temple of Yahweh. I don't know if you know that, but it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of offensive to God when you put a fake God in place of the real God in the place where he's supposed to be worshipped. He took his children, y'all. This is in the Bible. It's 2 Chronicles 33, if you want to look it up. He takes his sons and he makes them... Passed through the fire. That means he burned them alive to a demonic God as a sacrifice. This is what the, the king of Judah does. Says he was into uh, witchcraft and sorcery and necromancing. Do we have any necromancers in here? I mean, this guy's doing some like deep cut sins, right? This is like next level rebellion against the Lord. And yet, This is what the text is gonna say. Verse 10 of chapter 33. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the armies of the kings of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. That sound familiar? Sound a little bit like Psalm 107? Now, listen to what happens next. And when he was in distress, So he's horrible. Then this bad stuff happens to him. He starts feeling bad. He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. This man burned his children alive. And God said, comma, mercy, if you'll come. That's the God of the scriptures. At the bottom of his heart is an impulse to pardon, to love, to bring that steadfast, loyal, covenantal commitment to you. That's who he is. He's a scandalous helper. This was me with my addiction. I didn't know where to turn. I was in just a really dark place. I had like no Christian friends except this one guy who I vaguely knew. I went over to his house one day and I just kind of confessed my whole world to him of all the stuff I've been involved in. I didn't know what I was gonna meet on the other side and what I met was a man who told me about this person named Jesus and a cross on which he accomplished my redemption by paying for the very sins that I was so ashamed of and that I could have life with him forever. And that was uh that was many years ago now i've I've been uh, not from that day it took a little journey of me getting free uh, from that but it has been 16 years now since i've engaged with pornography and that is not a go jimmy story that is a go god story because when i came to him with my need he said comma mercy yes come i'll care for you i'll change your heart i'll do it and i'll do it for you he really will Let's say this together. This is how this story ends, too. It's going to be on the screen again. When all of that happens, we say, Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Amen. So we've seen trouble come from stupidity, trouble from sin, but what about when you don't have a hand in it at all? You ever thought about that? When when the trouble comes, but it just it wasn't because you did anything. It wasn't because you were holding the map wrong. It wasn't because you willfully sinned. It's just life happened. The cancer diagnosis came. The car crashed. The divorce was finalized. And, and, and whatever those situations are that are happening, th- this was not a you thing. What do you, what do you do in that moment? How do you respond in that moment? That's where so many of us are at. What, what, what does this text say? What does it teach us? Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships. So we've got some sailors here doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. So this is a bunch of sea merchants, right? They're traders. They're on the ocean. They, they sell commodities. That's, that's all this is. It says nothing good or bad about them, right? It just gives their employment. And then it says that they've seen the works of God. Okay, so how so? How have they seen it? For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Why do they have a problem? Well, the problem is, of course, there's some type of storm, and it's going crazy, right? And and they're they're losing their minds, right? It says they're at their wit's end. They're they're staggering like a drunk guy uh, on the deck of the ship. How how did this come about? Why do they have a problem? It's not because of them. just they're selling stuff well who's the cause it's god for he commanded and raised up the stormy wind not because of anything they did either in the last story god brought some pain because they spurned god but that's not what this story says this story just says they were selling stuff and then god raised up a stormy wind interesting I read this to my daughter a couple weeks ago, and she stopped me, she goes, did that just say God caused the storm? I said, yeah. She said, I thought God God calms the storms. I said, he does that too. She she was like, "Uh, I didn't expect that. Did you expect that? Can we take a sidebar for a moment? Can your theology handle that? Can can your theology handle the fact that God causes the storms he calms? It didn't say the devil did that. It says that God did this. Do you remember Job? We we, we read the Bible sometimes with such rose-colored glasses, we we overlook these things. Do you remember in Job, Satan, chapter one, shows up uh, to the throne room of God? Who brings up Job in that conversation? It wasn't the devil. The devil didn't say anything to God about Job. God said something about Job to the devil. Do you have a stomach for that? A theological grid for the fact that, what if God, in an effort to bring about something infinitely valuable in your life, your affection for him, your dependence on him, would be willing, even though it grieves him, to introduce pain into your life? Can I tell you something? That sentence will only make sense to you if your highest value is intimacy with God, not your own comfort. That sentence will utterly offend you if if you don't see the highest value in the world as dependency on the living God, nearness to living God. If you're after primarily your comfort, you will hate this verse. a thousand other verses like it in the scripture. It, it really, uh, this is what we do with texts like these. There's only a couple options of how to handle this. You could either do that, you could become a cynic when you come to these passages, right? A cynic is someone who reads this and goes, well, if that's how God is, I don't wanna be a part of that. Thank you very much. I, that's, that's not for me, I'm out. I have so many friends in my life who have bounced, they've left the faith entirely because they can't stomach the thought of a God causing the storms he calms. But it's right there in the text. So you can get cynical about it, that, that is an option. The problem with cynicism of course is when you actually need rescue from the situation you're in, you will not have a savior to help you because the only savior that can help is a savior who exists and the only savior that exists is the savior of this text. But you could choose that. That's an option for you. You could become a cynic. Or another option is you could become a stoic, right? You could become a, a fatalist. This feels a little bit more spiritual and a lot of uh, us Christians, especially a lot of us reformed Christians, we might go down this road. Uh, a fatalist, a stoic is somebody who's going to go, oh, God is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. He's in control of everything. So I'm just not going to pray about it. I mean, he's got it, he's got it under control. He's already made up his mind about what he wants to do. I trust him. So yeah, God, you just, you just do your thing. I know you got you the whole world in your hands, yeah, cool. And that feels really spiritual and that feels really nice, except that's not how the Bible talks. The Bible says both and. The Bible says, yeah, God is absolutely sovereign over every molecule in this entire cosmos. He's sovereign over every event that will ever happen to you. He causes the storm and plead with him. Beg him, ask him for mercy, because if he is that sovereign, that means he doesn't just plan the ends, he plans the means. And he may very well mean for you to pray for your lost friend, for your mother, for your child, for, for this sickness. He may very well intend in his sovereignty for you to be a participant in that So he is sovereign and also pray to him. I have a friend right now whose brother is dealing with cancer and it is awful. It is so bad that they stopped the surgery last week because they found too much in him. So there's nothing else we can do. And my friend believes in a sovereign God and she's praying like crazy. And we're on our prayer list with 11 other people and we're just pleading with God to move because we understand God doesn't just plan the ends of a thing. He plans the means. And he loves when his people beckon him, come to him with their needs. He loves that. So the Christian response is not cynicism and it's not stoicism. It's, it's need. It's pleading. That's how we act. And that's exactly what these sailors do too. Then they cried out to their Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distresses. He made the storm to be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. They brought their need. He brought his mercy. And we bring the praise. So let's say it together for this third time. It's on the screen. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Here's the point. If you're in need, you are If you're in need today, if that's you at all, at any level, and who of us, gosh, wouldn't say on some level that's us, if you're in need today of anything, you are just one step away from having the God of the universe as your advocate. That's the point. You're just one prayer, one pleading away from having... The full weight of the steadfast love of God just hoisted upon him. He's like a kid in a candy store. He cannot stop himself from, from giving to folks in trouble what they need when they ask him. And, and, the, and the shocking thing about this psalm and about our God is he's so indiscriminate. He so doesn't care. Do you have a record? You got a record? Like an actual record. There's mercy for you. He has mercy for you. Are you just up to your eyeballs in your sin and you just hardly can see over it, just the, the darkness that is in your heart right now? He has mercy for you. Have you just been a fool, just made so many careless to say you've just been terrible with your money, you're terrible with, with your marriage, terrible, just, you just haven't been thoughtful about your life. There's mercy for you. Has life just, just berated you and you, just knocking your boat over and you don't know where it's coming from, you just know this wasn't you doing it, right? Mercy for you, there is mercy for you with our God when we plead to him. We don't turn in, we turn to him. That is the posture of the Christian. We know there's nowhere else we can go. I won't find it here. I will find it there in the person of God. And that's why this whole psalm ends by saying this in verse 43. Whoever's wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say let let them consider their stupid decisions. Whoever's wise, let them just dwell on the fact that they're just, they're dumb. It doesn't say let them consider ways to clean themselves up so God will do something for them. Let them let, Let them get creative about ways to balance out the scales a little bit so that they can get God on their team. It says let them consider the steadfast love on the Lord. You want your mind to meditate on something? When you sin, when you struggle, when there's pain, when there's difficulty, when you've made poor decisions, don't meditate on you, meditate on God. That's what the scripture calls us to do. And when we do that, when we come to him, we will find an advocate. I was in India with Kelly last year and we were picking up our second boy from India. We've adopted twice now, we were getting our boy Isaac. And uh, we were so excited, you know, uh, anybody who's done international adoption, you know it's not like a six month thing, it's like a two year, th- it was like two and a half years for us with both of our boys, it was just a lot of work. We're finally there, we make it to the orphanage, we've got him in our arms, he's, you know, crying like a madman, I get it, you don't know me, I'm really pasty and uh, probably scary looking to you. Uh, we, uh, we, we get in the car uh, and we, there's a long drive back to our hotel, we make it to our hotel, and the taxi driver had, had brought us back. And uh, at, the, um, at the orphanage, they had handed uh, us a, um, a manila envelope. And in that manila envelope was basically uh, every, every document that we need in order to validate that Isaac's our actual son, legally, uh, demonstrate uh, all of uh, his shots and all of that uh, for the medical community, and uh, Uh, prove to the U.S. that uh, we can actually bring him home as our child. And they handed that manila envelope to me. (laughs) Why is that funny? (laughs) And we get to the hotel, and I'm getting him out, and Kelly's helping stuff, and I set that manila envelope on the trunk of the taxi. And uh, then we head in, because it's dinner time, And that manila envelope goes on that taxi into the streets of Hyderabad, never to be seen again. And the next morning, we've got to catch a plane because we're heading to New Delhi. New Delhi is sort of their Washington, D.C. We're going go to go the, to the U.S. Embassy, and we're going to go hand them all the documents and, and uh, bring our son home. Except we don't have documents now. And it's my fault the, this is this is his uh, original birth certificate this is all his medical paperwork it's all the photographs of him it's all the paperwork from the orphanage it is uh his court order it is everything and it's gone and i'm losing my mind and i and we're calling uh the, the lady who helps us there we're going is there any is there anything we can do i mean is there anything that uh can be done she's like I don't know. So we're like, what happens if we can't get it? She's like, well, I mean, maybe at best, uh, you're maybe in country for another four months with your son while we try to apply for stuff and get that. Um, uh, I, I don't know, you can't bring him home without it. Can you call the orphanage? Maybe they have documents. Okay, I'll call make some calls. And we're just, we're just freaking out. I feel so bad. My wife has worked so hard on this. I say her, it has not been me, it's been her. And, 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 and I, I lost everything. It's, it's like five days until, we're in New Delhi now, it's five days till till our appointment at the embassy. You don't reschedule an embassy appointment, by the way. It's this day or it's like, man, sorry, man, we'll see you next year, I don't know. It's like five or so days. We 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 get a call, and she says, "Hey, um, they have some of those key documents. They they actually, for some reason, have an extra birth certificate, uh, uh, and uh, they got some of the paperwork. And I'm just put. They not they don't they didn't really love you guys while you're here, but uh, they may still send it uh, to us. So I'm gonna ask them if if they can do that, Okay, uh, we find out uh, the next day. It's like four days till that." They're gonna send it. It's in the mail. I'm I'm just like, Lord, please do something. It's in the mail, but I don't know if you know this, but India mail isn't exactly FedEx. Uh, It's like, I don't know what it is. It's like, it's crazy. Uh, um, But yeah, so I was very unoptimistic when I heard it was in the mail. I was like, this may be, it may be four months before I see this. It's like three days, two days. We haven't heard anything. We don't know what's going on. It's like either two days before or the day before we have our appointment. And uh, Kelly's out uh, somewhere, I'm in the hotel room, and I just, I'm just breaking down. I'm on my knees before the Lord, I'm praying. I am just I'm just. God, what do I do? I just feel, I was I, just hating myself. And the Lord brought a couple passages into my mind. And one of them, the first one he brought, was Psalm 107, 43. Who's wise? Let him take heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. And what I felt like the Lord was saying to me in that moment was, yeah, Jimmy, you, you made a mistake, but are you going to live just staring at yourself and your failures, or are you going to look at the only person in this room who can actually do something about it? I just felt so convicted. I've, I've been focused right here. I have not been focused on the helper, and so I just changed my prayer life. I just started confidently saying, God, I do trust you. You, you have shown yourself faithful in the Word. You've shown yourself faithful in my life. I believe that you're going to act I'm trusting you today, and before I could say amen, before, the phone rings in the room. And I go over and I pick it up, and it's the gal I was telling you about. By the way, do you know what the agency refers to this lady as on behalf of us? You know what they call her? Our advocate. You know what her name was? Gloria. So I pick up the phone, and on the other end is our glorious advocate. And she says, I just want to let you know, I'm holding the envelope in my hand. It came in the mail. You're good for tomorrow. Guys, I'm not a Pentecostal. But it got crazy. There were some praise dances. There was two or three different tongues being spoken in that room. I, I don't know what happened, but I lost my mind. I was, I'm just, God did it. He did it, and he did it as soon as I turned that corner and said, I'm done staring at me, I'm gonna stare at you. What's the pattern? Need, mercy, praise. That's the, Christian, that's the gospel, that we were in our deepest point of need. God sent his son, fully human and yet fully God, the one who in Mark 4 literally fulfilled uh, Psalm 107 by calming a storm, saying, I am the God who helps And yet, in his greatest act of mercy, he came not just to do some signs and wonders, but he came to die for sinners like you and me, so that if you would get over yourself and turn to him and go, you are the only one who can grant me forgiveness, he will, comma, give you mercy. It's what he does. And if that's you today, I would invite you to do that. Don't live in your own defeated self. Live looking outside of yourself to him. He's ready and willing to save you today because another has paid your debt. That's how you get mercy. We bring our need. He brings the mercy. And the only thing left to do is praise. So that's what we're gonna do now. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're just gonna sing to him. Does that sound good? Father, we thank you for being the God who always gives mercy. You are kind when we are not you are generous when we don't deserve it when we're foolish you're ready without uh, insult when we're sinners you are at the ready without shaming us and we just want to say thank you and we need you and we ask you for your help today and always god would we be people who don't just look in ourselves and either beat ourselves up or congratulate ourselves or try to clean ourselves up so we're okay for you, but instead, will we turn outward toward you, the one who's full of loving kindness, the one who's full of steadfast love. We want to be people who give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.